Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and mentorship. So check it out at tkex.org. We've got a self-paced online BPS course. So check it all out and uh, leave us some feedback as well in our discussion group. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Surley. He's a physiotherapist who we actually met in our one day course and have heard some great stories of his involvement with pain revolution. He's an awesome human and an awesome clinician and keen to dive into his story and some topics today on BPS practice. So Daniel, thank you so much for making the time for us. Cool, great to be here. Awesome, awesome. So Dan, the infamous question, what's your story? Yeah, always a great question. Um, so yeah, I think my story I have to go back to before I even started uni. So I grew up in a small country town. My parents are dairy farmers. I'm actually vision impaired, but I was sighted up until the age of 16 when I lost my vision, or at least the majority of my vision due to a genetic condition. And so that was the start of year 10. And so at a point where I was um, starting to contemplate what my life would look like beyond school, starting to think about year 11 and 12 subjects and whether I'd go to university and career choices. And suddenly that threw everything up in the air and didn't know what acquiring a disability was going to mean for me finishing school, let alone work prospects and things like that. Um, prior to losing my vision, I was considering a career in physiotherapy due to largely a passion with sport and wanted something where I could work with athletes and continue playing sport and being involved with sport myself. Um, after I lost my vision, I wasn't sure if that was still going to be a, a valid option. Um, but I was lucky enough that, yeah, I went and explored what being vision impaired and being a physiotherapist might look like and was lucky enough to find that there are other vision impaired physios within the country and around the world. And um, when I was going through that change of losing my vision and adapting to vision loss, I was lucky enough to work with a number of fantastic occupational therapists um, through Vision Australia and Guide Dogs. And I think that really helped me affirm the idea that I wanted to work as a health professional. I'm just so grateful for the help they gave me and the way they sort of presented me with options that I could still do all the things that I wanted to do. It might not exactly look the same as what I anticipated, if you'll pardon the pun, um, but there are still other ways around things. And that help that I received just made me think I want to give back in the way that I received help. Um, so yeah, I was lucky enough to complete my HSE using screen reading software, the same software that I still use now and went on to lucky enough to get an offer to study physiotherapy um, and yeah, presented plenty of challenges along the way, but really glad that I got there in the end and um, really learnt a lot of things about myself and what's important and what it means to have a disability and overcome a disability. And I'm really excited that I now work in a field where I can help people that might have the same struggles or the same um, difficulties um, that I once had, I guess. Amazing, it's inspiring. So, in, and for the, the listeners out there and, and for our information, how much kind of vision 
do you have? Is there, and what's the kind of classification with your impairment, if you don't mind? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I have a central vision condition, so can't see much stuff directly in front of myself. So can't read print or recognize people's faces or anything where you would use to get detail. There's a little bit of useful vision still there. It's sort of mostly like blurry shapes and shadows so I rely heavily on um, screen reading software to access all my text and things like that um, yeah and use a guide dog and a cane when I'm out walking um, have a guide dog with me now in the clinic which is a bonus um, yeah awesome and, and you're currently working in, in a in a clinic and so I imagine the, the clients patients don't mind a guide dog being there? Oh, it's really a fantastic icebreaker. Um, I think it's really important to form a connection with your patients and that idea around a therapeutic alliance. And I think having a dog in the room is just so powerful. I would encourage all clinicians should have dogs in my, my opinion. It's just such a, just breaks that tension. And for people that are sometimes feeling a bit vulnerable, just and might not know what to talk about. Sometimes just talking about a dog or their dog or talking to the dog is yeah, just amazing how that sort of opens people up and brings their guard down a little bit. That's great. It's creating extra safety in the, the context, the environment. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Playfulness. That's great. Love it. And the, the question that's probably on a lot of listeners' minds, how did you go through with palpation, manual therapy, uh, and any, all the hands-on kind of therapies, I guess, throughout university and first first bit out of practice. How did you handle that challenge, and and, and how do you practice now with your your hands-on therapies? Yeah, so like probably a lot of people that go into physiotherapy, I was going into physiotherapy assuming I was going to work for an elite sports team and that's that's what physiotherapy was and that's why you become a physio um quickly five minutes into physio i realized there's a lot more to physiotherapy than just working for a sports team and i realized that whilst i enjoy that stuff i there's so much more to it than that and there's so much more i have to offer just than working in sport it's interesting going in being physiotherapist at, with a vision impairment that people it's sort of either two extremes of reactions that I get when they realize that I'm vision impaired and I'm a physiotherapist. People either go, oh my God, how do you do that? Or, oh my God, you must be amazing at that because you must have such good hands-on skills. And I probably put a lot of pressure on myself that thinking, well, I need to have the best hands-on skills because everyone assumes that that's what I must do. So I'm going to, in order to be a good physio, I have to have the best manual therapy skills going around and I have to have, to have the best palpation skills going around. A couple of years out of uni, I, I met a doctor who I was surprised that his reaction was not one of those two things, but he said, you must have the best listening skills. And I thought, well, that's fantastic because that, that is true and that's what I pride myself on and I think that's what makes me a good physio and a good health professional, the fact that I do listen to my patients and spend a lot of time doing that. And so it's, it's really not been about my hands-on skills so much. I think probably like a lot of um, new grads when I was first out at uni, I put so much pressure on myself that I had to be able to feel everything perfect. And I was looking for this infamous movement of the SIJ joint and thinking, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. I can't find these tiny millimetre 
movements that everyone else is reporting. Um, and then when I explored, start exploring pain science and things like that, and realised that that it's not that important, if I can be so controversial as to say that, um, it, it was really quite reassuring to me. And the more I've got more knowledge around pain science and through reading people like David Butler and Laura Mosley and Peter O'Sullivan and Tasha Stanton and things like that, it was really liberating for me and to realize that my hands-on skills create a great sort of therapeutic connection with my clients, but they're not all that I am. Um, my listening skills and my ability to empathize and connect with patients is really what makes me a good clinician and what makes me enjoy my job, I guess. That's great. So the constraint, I guess, of, of the, the palpation, the manual therapy, um, I guess the, the misconceptions and limitations, you, you turn that into an opportunity to, to highlight actually what really matters in a, in a therapeutic interaction with someone the, and the actual importance of, of listening. It's not yeah. just, uh, when you're not just paying lip service to, to listening, you're, you're actually using all of the communication skills that you have at your disposal. And it's really interesting how quickly we put limitations on ourselves, and we embody these identities and labels that maybe other people place on us or whatever and think that we have to live up to something else that someone else is saying. And that pressure that I'd put on myself thinking that I, I have to have the perfect palpation skills and I, I can't see as well as everyone else in the class. So I have to have better manual therapy skills than everyone else in the class. Otherwise I'll never be equal to anyone else in the class. When I, when I suddenly moved away from that and realized that, well, that's not all that I am. I do have a lot of other great things going for me. And the fact that I am a good listener and can empathize and connect with my patients is probably really one of my greatest strengths and one of the things that holds me in good stead. And for the most part, in most of my interactions, people regularly forget that I am vision impaired. It's often not until Frodo, my guide dog, moves in the corner that they go, oh, hang on. Oh, yeah, that's right. You can't see. So, and I think that's that's a huge compliment to me that that's, that's not even a thing. The fact that I can't see after five minutes after meeting me, most people have forgotten that I'm vision impaired. That's awesome. And that kind of goes against the, the misconception that I guess the importance is in our hands-on assessments and our hands-on therapies rather so that the, the patient doesn't even realize until afterwards that, Hey, actually you, you were able to show care. You were able to show empathy. You were able to, to show that you were listening and you were able to help a fellow human with, with all your communication skills. Yes. Yeah. And, it, and it's not just about those hands-on skills and whilst they may play a role, they're not really everything. So and I, I'm curious, did that kind of uh, go against your idea of what a physiotherapist, the role of a physio or, or a clinician might be? Absolutely. It looks very different to what I'd anticipated it would look like. I assumed that's, that's what I had to be and that's what I expected of myself. And um, it's really now the manual therapy side of things is a very small part of what I do. It's a lot about listening to people and understanding their situation and their story. And I think I can often relate it back to my own experience of um, losing my vision and um, the limitations other people were putting 
on me or telling me the thing, all the things that I couldn't do rather than the things that I could do. And um, working in the persistent pain space, it's sort of, yeah, very sad to me when I hear about patients, all the limitations that have been placed on them that, you know, they can't run anymore or they shouldn't walk or they shouldn't bend like this and et cetera, et cetera. And when we should be working with them to help them get back to doing the things that they can be doing and that they want to be doing and you know including that them in that decision making process rather than you know taking their power away from them that's it and and we've been talking about the role of the facilitator the coach the guide rather than the the kind of operator mindset or the fix the fixer mindset and i think that kind of goes against a lot of people's uh, understanding and and um, ideas of the role of a of a therapist of a clinician What's your take then? What, what, what is your role? What do you kind of see yourself as now? Yeah, so I know like when, when we're going through uni, that's so much about how we're taught that we have to find that sort of perfect diagnosis and provide that perfect treatment to the patient in front of us, to that condition that they're presenting with. And, you know, when, when we start and we learn how to first um, conduct an assessment, uh, we usually operate off a template possibly that has, you know, this set list of questions that we have to work through. I was, it was probably for me a blessing in disguise that I could never see those printed out tablets. So I just worked from my memory to know that, okay, these are roughly all the things that I need to get through in this interview. It may not be in exactly the same order, but my memory is good enough that I can remember everything I need to ask. So when, when you're operating off that template, I think it creates a very disjointed interaction that it's just a lot of yes no questions a lot of closed questions even though we may talk about open-ended questions whereas I think I adapted my own style in many ways that works a lot better for me where it's more conversation based where I just I just let the conversation go to where the patient naturally wants to go and know that the reality is that they will tell me what's important to them and they will tell me what's meaningful to them and then help them to sort of brainstorm and problem solve and work the way through solutions to that problem rather than when you work through that sort of template model and that checkbox model, it ends up that you're dictating what the problem is and you're dictating the solution. So it takes away a lot of the control from that patient. It's very disempowering in my mind. So... I like to try and do my best to give back control to that patient and empower them to know that they, they have control and they are stronger and more capable than they, they might've otherwise thought. That's great. And that kind of template, it, it's, it puts the pressure on, on us as well to figure out the problems and the solutions and it takes away some of the responsibility. And, and like you said, the power that the, the patient has in terms of the shared decision-making in terms of where they want to take it and what they want to do, what's most meaningful to them. Cause we can be so easily focused on our own tick box, right? Checking, ticking all the, the boxes uh, and we could be forgetting the human in front of us. Yeah. And, and I know again, when I was a new grad, I put so much pressure on myself that there must've been something wrong if I couldn't get the, the perfect diagnosis within the first 10 minutes of an interaction with a patient that I, I mustn't be a good enough physio and I'm never going to succeed. And then I guess when I, um, you know, reflect back on my own experience again with losing my vision, um, 
it, it took months before I got a diagnosis of what had caused my vision loss. And the reality was getting the diagnosis didn't actually solve anything that didn't change the fact that I was vision impaired. So sort of taking away that sort of reductionist sort of fixer type mindset to you know, just look at the patient in front of you and let them share what the problem is. Cause it, it's not about the diagnosis and often the diagnosis is not going to create the solution. Let them tell you what the problem is and what the thing is that they want help with you and work together to guide them to a solution that's meaningful to them. Um, Cause I think, you know, for myself being vision impaired, that's, that's a small part of who I am and it, it's not, it doesn't change what I can or can't do sort of thing. Yeah. And it, it, it would discount your, your meaningful goals, your aspirations, your, your dreams. If you were to just focus on the limitations, we could get so stuck in that mindset of needing to find that specific dysfunction or that specific, like exact diagnosis. We could be missing out on the whole picture. So what kind of drew you into that mindset away from the, I guess the fresh from university finding the specific cause and that very much the biomedical treatment model into how you're practicing now. What was, what were some of those changes that those, um, that, that bridge the gap? Yeah, for me, um, one of the key things was going and doing an explain pain course with um, David Butler and Laura Mosley. And then I was incredibly lucky to get a scholarship to become a local pain educator through the pain revolution. So got sponsorship to go and study a graduate certificate in pain science through the University of South Australia. And that really opened me up to that sort of biopsychosocial model I like to think I knew what it was before then, but maybe everything I did wasn't necessarily directly in line with um, best practice for a biopsychosocial model of care. And I think that completely changed my thinking to sort of look more at the person and their thoughts and beliefs and, and not focus so much on that biomedical sort of model, I guess. Um, so being more confident in what pain science is and what pain is and what pain isn't and being able to be in a position to better explain that to my patients to be able to reassure them about the safety that um, safety to move and safety to get back to doing the things that they want to be doing and that are meaningful to them. So it's the, the way that we can communicate and show someone and demonstrate to them that they can actually achieve a lot more than they thought, as you mentioned. So that kind of way of practicing and, and how would you kind of define BPS practice or um, yeah, how would you define if, if you were to explain it to, to the lay person? Um. Well, I guess often when I talk to my patients, I, I like to compare and contrast those two different sort of widely held models of biomedical versus biopsychosocial. And it, and it explained to the patients that it's, it's not an either or, or that biopsychosocial is all encompassing and sort of explain that that bio is everything that's making up the, the tissue and then everything, the thoughts, feelings, beliefs is sort of parts of the psycho and the social is sort of parts of the community they're within and how they identify themselves and to explain that in any situation all those things are overlapping and interacting with each other so we can't just address one of those factors and ignore all the others in order to help the person in front of them um, so 
I also like to reflect on, on the way I practice and having now gone out into business myself, it's sort of not just about how you talk to the patient and the information you present to the patient, but it's sort of those nonverbal cues and all those other things around the environment you're in that what message is that sending to your patient so I guess it was it was important to me when I started setting up my own clinic that um, I didn't like that a lot of clinics were you know all sort of white walls or sort of fluorescent lights or pictures of anatomical structures that were damaged it's sort of sending all the wrong messages that goes against what I believe in that's all that all again very disempowering taking that control away from the patient patient um, it's often that you walk into a physio's room and the center of the treatment space is the bed and to me that just again sends that message that you're broken I'm here to fix you I've got the tools to fix you whereas I prefer to have more of I've got a very open relaxed space I've got more pictures of things that make me happy that I enjoy my dog the outside environment um, the farm things like that um, things that try and send the message that I'm a human, you're a human, let's meet equally as a human and let's do what we can to work together to give you back control of your life. It's going away from the biomedical, the, the treatment, the, the sick role of the patient needing to, to lie down immediately on, on a treatment table to be assessed and, and diagnosed and then treated specifically for their ailment. So instead, it's more of a human-to-human -human interaction and, and the, the entire context. So you've got an, a greater appreciation of the, the non-specific effects, how the environment can kind of shape the expectations of people as they walk in. And, and would you, where did you kind of uh, learn about all these, uh, these implications and, and the, the messages, I guess, the importance of the messages Oh, that's a great question, Daniel. I honestly have no idea. It's just maybe largely from my own experience. Like, I guess I never really felt comfortable with the way, I don't know, it's all like little things. Even I don't like the way doctors often sit on one side of a desk sort of looking at a computer and the patient sits on the other side sort of. It's this unequal partnership. I prefer to sit more open, open shoulders, open looking at the patient. Um, on the same level, like even sometimes you see the doctors or health professionals with the big chairs with big arms and then the patient sits in a smaller chair with a smaller arms. I don't know why that's important to me and why that matters to me, but I just don't like the message that it sends. It sort of gives this indirect message that, you know, I am the authority figure and you will do as I say, whereas it's just, it doesn't sit well with me and who I am as a person and who I want to be as a health professional. I I like to meet sort of more on a equal partnership and allow the patient to be in a position where they feel comfortable and they feel open to share because they want to share and they want to work together to find a solution. And then I want to work with them to give them control of the condition. If we get to a position where the patient, the only way for the patient to feel better or to um, get help is to give me control is to let go of control themselves and me to take control, then I feel like I've failed as a health professional. I want to do what I can to work with them, to give them the tools to help themselves. It's great. And it makes our jobs a lot more satisfying when, when the person is involved, it, it takes away some of the burden for us and it makes, yeah, it, it's just great when there's some active involvement from both parties. So it's a shared decision-making process 
rather than it being all about us. Cause it, it's not about us. It's about the, the patients, the clients that we, we help. Right. Oh, exactly. Yep. And, and again, that's the same as myself with my vision loss. It's sort of when the best sort of instructors I work with that were teaching me how to use a cane and teaching me how to use my guide dog, there was no point them, you know, being there holding my hand every step of the way. It was about them teaching me how to do it myself and teaching me how to do the things that were meaningful to me in alternative ways. So I could then control my own destiny. And, and it's an amazing thing to have control. Suddenly when you get that control taken away from you, you feel, feel very vulnerable and very isolated. It's amazing how you're reflecting on your own experience personally to see the value in self-efficacy and self-management for the people that you serve and people that you help. That's yeah. It's, inspirational man that's 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 awesome i wanted to to touch on perhaps some of the if you've come across misconceptions or myths uh, by by clinicians of what bps practice looks like so where i'll cover the first one that comes to mind is the it's not we're not dis, uh, disregarding the biomedical the biomedical is embedded in the biopsychosocial and we're not separating all the the components so we're not just treating the psychosocial we're not reducing it into different parts we're still looking at the entire human what are some other kind of common misconceptions myths that you've, you've come across yeah i guess the thing i'm still seeing within manual therapy and i look i, I don't want to just um dismiss the role of manual therapy i still do some manual therapy um but i think manual therapists are becoming more and more aware of that biopsychosocial model of care. Um, but I still see it's sort of still separated very much into silos that, okay, I'm a manual therapist. I'll deal with the bio. I'll send someone else to deal with the psychosocial. And it's sort of separated into completely separate silos. And I think that can still unfortunately um, send the message to the patient that, I need to go to this manual therapist because they'll fix this. I'm not sure why I'm going to this psychologist. Are you saying it's all in my head? So if we can work together more as clinicians and um, be interacting together, and, and if we as manual therapists can better understand those psychosocial influences, um, we can help our patients to better understand. But if all we're doing is telling them about stretches and giving them massage or manipulations or things like that and we go yeah we know what the biopsychosocial model of care is everything we're doing is reinforcing the idea that it's purely driven by tissue pathology so we may understand the biopsychosocial model of care but i don't think it necessarily fits with the messages we're sending when we practice so what you're saying is we can understand it in theory we can perhaps address it by asking about sleep and stress the first two things that come to mind yeah however we might be practicing in a way that sends that the message that hey it's actually maybe it's all in your head or maybe it's it's all in the the tissues right now we just need to strengthen this particular muscle and so it's interesting there's a bit of a contrast there and i and i always wonder what the the patient leaves the consult room with Oh, exactly. Because I feel like, yeah, we, we might ask about sleep and we might talk about, you know, mental health or depression or something like that. But at the end of the day, if all we did was some massage and provided them with exercises, what they've left with in my mind is that it's the tissue that's the problem and 
that next time there's a flare up of that, it must be the tissue that's the problem. I need to go get that addressed again. So I think, yeah, we can become better in the way we communicate. And I think some of the best courses I've done since I graduated have been more around thinking about those communication skills. Again, sort of reflecting back to when I was a new grad, sort of putting my pressure on myself that I had to have these perfect manual therapy skills and I have to have these perfect diagnosis skills. Everything I did was sort of leading down that I need to go find the perfect taping technique or the perfect exercise technique and then I'll be a better therapist and then I'll be a better clinician. And I think when I sort of moved away from that and trusted in what I knew and my anatomical knowledge and my physiology knowledge and moved more into communication skills and um, better connecting with patients and looking at some basic psychology and things like that. I think that's made me a better clinician because I can still understand those basic principles of exercise and strength and conditioning and stuff like that, but I can better now connect with a human and explain the role of those psychosocial factors in what may be happening within their body. Interesting. So it's, we're not necessarily discounting the importance of the biological factors of biomechanics, of anatomy, of, of knowing about exercise. However, if we were to look at the entire picture, maybe we need a lot more time spent, invested in, in courses and diving deeper experientially ourselves into enhancing the communication, the interaction, the, the importance of being psychologically informed. Yes, because I think in many ways we're still just paying lip service to it. And I think, yeah, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, especially, as I say, when we first come out of uni and start practising that if we don't have all the answers, that must be because we haven't done enough courses in manual therapy or diagnostic techniques or taping techniques or whatever it may be. We could be caught in that rabbit hole of, of going down that path um, and it's, I guess it's, it's difficult to see that we're in that rabbit hole. We're trying to chase the specific diagnoses or the, the all the manual therapy techniques courses, the, even the exercise courses, and we might be missing out on the, the actual important stuff, the, how to build a therapeutic alliance with a human that probably disagrees with you. That's probably heard different narratives. That's probably not expecting your approach at all. So, so I'd say that it sounds like we need to spend more time overall in, in, communication skills absolutely yep and just learning to connect with our patients i think yeah and one of the the questions that has, comes to mind i can imagine listeners might be asking is how do you incorporate manual therapy or, or your hands-on therapies um within, within the kind of framework that you have being so person-centered and promoting self-efficacy and self-management i think there's a misconception that with manual therapy, you're immediately not promoting self-management and self-efficacy. So how do you, how do you kind of incorporate the, the hands-on techniques? And, yeah, well, well my touch is still really an important part of what I do. And I guess largely in many ways, my, my hands do become my eyes sometimes that um, patients still want to show you stuff and show you how swollen one knee is compared to the other. And, if they know that I can't see, well, then for me, the best way to get a perception of that is to um, 
get my hands on them and have a feel of one knee compared to the other. And I can, I guess, use that to my advantage that once I have made that connection and I've seen that, then I can, I can reassure the patient and go, wow, that's fantastic. Isn't that great evidence of how your body works? Like, did you know that inflammation is actually a good thing? It's a normal part of the healing process. And that can sort of open up some of those conversations. Um, and if I can, yeah, just use my hands to make that connection with those patients um, and then sort of guiding them through, through movements and things like that. So it might not be necessarily manual therapy in the way it was when I started with, um, yeah, probably a lot of massage and um, manipulation and things like that. Um, it's, I guess, still largely very, very hands-on and, and I like that, we as manual therapists are in a privileged position where we do get to touch our patients. Um, I have a lot of psychology friends that are very jealous that they're not allowed to touch their patients. Whereas we are in that privileged positions where we can get our hands on our patients and we shouldn't underestimate the importance of a connection with our patients, even just that reassuring touch and things like that. Yes. Yeah, so it's a way it sounds like to fully assess someone to get the to show them that we're caring and we're actually looking and and, and making sure we're covering um, the, the the assessment to show that we're we're actually going through their concern rather than just telling them verbally that hey actually it's okay based on based on your subjective um, you're actually fine so it's an extra layer of of reassurance and the power of touch to develop that that connection is 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 important. Mm. Yeah. And it's amazing the amount of times that patients will come and say, oh, the doctor didn't even look at my this or they didn't even get their hands on this. So when you're hearing that, you're hearing the patients telling you that they want you to get your hands on them. They want you to look at what's what's hurting or what's not hurting. So it's really important that, that we acknowledge that we've heard that and we respond to the messages that they're giving us. Awesome. I wanted to hear more about your recent educational pursuits. So you're, you're currently doing a graduate diploma of psychological sciences. Correct me where I'm wrong. Yeah, so I'm just about to start that process and I've started doing some work with a psychologist. So um, one of the other local pain educators in Albury-Wodonga is a psychologist and we've done a lot of our presentations. So in our role as local pain educators, we um, volunteer to go give talks to health professionals locally about modern pain science and what we learned through our graduate certificate and um, the wonderful work of the pain revolution. Um, and we really enjoy presenting together. Um, I think we have very similar values and maybe do obviously slightly different things in what we practice, but we're sort of preaching the same message, I guess. So we thought it that it would be great to sort of do a little bit more work together. So we've started doing some co-treating, working with patients with persistent pain conditions and doing some group education and things like that. And it's just really excited me to be able to work with someone else directly um, in that close contact and just see how um, Bernie uses different questions and stuff to get to the same, same answers or same results that I'm, mightn't sort of be so direct or mightn't ask questions or mightn't understand things in the same way that she does because of her background. Um, and, it, and it's been good for me equally to be able to provide her some more knowledge about movement and exercise and what that might be saying to us or might not be saying to us. Um, so that really prompted me that I wanted to go explore sort of 
psychology and that idea around um, fear and human behavior and motivation and things like that. Cause I think it's sort of skills that I can use to connect better with my patients and try and empower them and give that sort of self-efficacy and stuff like that. Yeah, that's great. So you're, you're adding on new skills of behavior change of looking at the importance of emotions and how they can impact humans. So, so it's, you're adding an extra skill set. I always love that we, we can talk the same language to psychologists who are pain science informed. And, and I feel like sometimes I can understand uh, someone's, uh, I guess, communication with, with their approach to healthcare and to helping people more than say fellow EPs sometimes. So, so that's always a interesting kind of thought. And I, I'm curious, what's it like to, to exchange thoughts and, and opinions when talking about similar issues with, with Bernie? Oh, it's just fantastic. It's, it's for all the time that we might um, work with similar patients and we might um, connect with other health professionals. The majority of time, it's communication is through sort of emails and letters and stuff like that. It's really hard to get that time to sort of talk directly about a patient's experience. So it's amazing to be both in the same room together and to work directly with patients and, and giving those patients that opportunity to just share their story once is huge. So many of these patients have been through um, such significant journeys and had to repeat themselves over and over again and probably get to the point where they feel like they're not being listened to or understood. So it's really nice to just be in the room together and allow the patients to be able to just share their experience once and then to see again where that conversation goes and then to have a moment at the end to sort of debrief and hear what um, Bernie may have heard or not heard and that I haven't heard. And yeah, to just um, compare notes at the end of it is fantastic to work with someone that sort of approaches things from a slightly different perspective to you, but has the same values as you. Yeah, that's, that's great. So what kind of differences do you, do you see in the approach and what have you taken from the experience so far? What kind of nuggets or gems have you stolen from Bernie? Um, I guess what's been really interesting that we've sort of discussed in the last few weeks um, sort of, you know, we're talking about how the biopsychosocial model of care and what that means, and especially um, for us as exercise clinicians and manual therapists, we sort of are more aware of that. Um, but approaching into discussions around mental health, I think we're still not very good at. We sort of, we accept its importance and we know that it's an, a big factor in a patient and how they present, but I don't think we're very good at asking questions. We maybe again pay lip service to go, oh, have you had thoughts of suicide and stuff like that? But then maybe we'd be worried about where the answer goes. So we don't want to probe too deeply because that might be rude. Whereas working with a psychologist, it's reassuring to see how direct they are with their questions, that they will ask very direct questions about um, mental illness and depression and suicide thoughts and, and trauma and stuff like that. Whereas I would have never done that on my own. And, you know, maybe in some instances I shouldn't because I don't have the skills or training to deal with that. But it's nice to know that it is equally okay to ask a direct question. And it's nice um, to know that sometimes if a patient sort of drops some information, maybe they're wanting you to ask because they want to talk about it. And if we never notice those cues, 
then we'll never ask and they'll never get the opportunity to share it. And that might've been that one moment. Um, if I give you an example, um, last week I had a patient talking about, I asked a question about sleep and she just casually passed in, oh, I was taking some sleeping tablets, but the doctor doesn't want to give me to them to me anymore because she's worried about what I might do. And then she quickly changed the topic. And I think the old me would have just let that slide because I wasn't sure what to do about it. But now that I've sort of been working with a psychologist and seeing how they ask much more direct questions and that that's okay, I sort of thought, hang on, I think that patient was slipping that in because she wants me to ask. So that was great that we had that opportunity to have that discussion then around suicide. And she was able to tell me where, where she was at. And I think she feels more connected to me that we shared that experience and shared that moment. And that's been really nice working with a psychologist to see that that is okay. And then that often offers the opportunity to talk about how those factors can be influencing not only how they're feeling, how they're sleeping, but that's going to influence their pain and their experience and their movement and stuff like that as well. Yeah. So, so you get a bit more comfortable and you get vicarious learning how it actually goes with handling the responses. Cause we don't number one, ask, these direct questions and let alone know how to respond to them. So you've got a better idea now of, of what it, that looks like. Yeah, exactly. And knowing that, well, one, it is okay to ask those questions. And in fact, it's probably better to ask more direct questions when it comes to those things. Um, and two, that you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have the perfect answers, but it gives you the opportunity to have a discussion and, if you miss that opportunity, you don't know if that patient might never bring it up with someone else again. Like, I don't want to put pressure on everyone that we need to be asking all those questions, but just being more aware and noticing those things, I think I've become um, better at tuning into those cues and being able, being more comfortable with asking more direct questions. That's great. That's awesome. That's uh, something that I feel that there is a gap in, in most of our knowledge as, as allied health professionals, especially in the MSK private practice space, that we need to learn how to look out for these indications of, of perhaps some, some mental health considerations and, and how, to, how to directly ask. Um, it's better to be directly asking than beating around the bush. And, it's, and we've been through, um, we have had, uh, we've hosted Thrive Mental Health First Aid course, and that's one of the things that, that they talk about there with, with suicide and how it's much better to ask directly than it is to kind of try to ask indirectly yeah, and I think when we, we all know the stats around sort of mental health and suicide and stuff like that, I don't think any of us can say as a health professional that we haven't had a patient that's potentially depressed or had suicidal thoughts. It's just maybe they haven't necessarily disclosed us that to us, and I'm not saying that they all need to, um, but just being more aware and, and knowing that it, it is okay to ask a direct question. There's nothing wrong with asking a direct question. Yeah, there's perhaps some fear and um, uh, yeah, misunderstandings of the implications of asking that. So there's a, we can perhaps magnify the consequences where, yeah, it's, it's much better to, to develop that, that, that rapport that you can get after, after connecting with someone on a much deeper level. That's really cool. Yeah, and I think within and the persistent pain space, you know, you worry about um, patients are quite vulnerable and um, they p potentially may have had a doctor suggest that they go to a psychologist, but you know, what they've heard is that their pain's all in their head. Whereas if, if we can be the clinician that 
allows them to have that discussion, that might be a second opportunity to say, or have you thought about speaking to a psychologist? And there are a lot of wonderful psychologists that have a great knowledge of pain science and would be able to have those conversations with patients a lot better than I would. So I think it's sort of recognising um, where our training starts and ends and the more we can have a better idea or knowledge of each other's skill sets, the more we're, you know, better placed to refer appropriately and work together, really. Awesome. That multidisciplinary approach. Love that. Dan, final question before I ask you where we can find out more about you is your, your business. You're running your own show at the moment. So, and you've mentioned a few things about your, your values and how you share them with, with Bernie and you're very much building someone's control, their own self-management in their situation with their pain. So what are the ways that you, I, I guess, what are your key performance indicators what are your KPIs as a business owner? Gee, um, I guess I just really like hearing that my patients are back doing the things that they want to be doing. It's so often I hear that about the things that have been taken away from them and sometimes the advice they've been given that's not really based on evidence that, you know, they shouldn't, they shouldn't run or they shouldn't go dancing anymore and that's really not necessarily based on any evidence. But... Um, it's it's very scary for patients to hear those things, and so it's it's really the biggest performance indicator I look at it is that the patient's back doing the thing that they want to be doing, and that they are happy and healthy, and 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 they feel they've got control. They feel they've got the skills and knowledge to be able to take control of what's happening in their life. So they're back into their meaningful activities, the, the things that pain was kind of getting in the way of they they've got that that's function focused so you didn't say that they're going to be pain free there that was so that you're not just focusing just on the this i guess the symptomatic focus it sounds like well i guess i find that with my patients that it's um they will present because of persistent pain um and they will present and tell you about the pain but when you probe a little deeper, it's often not the pain that's the biggest thing that's bothering them. It's about the things that the pain has taken away from them. And again, I, I relate that back to my own vision loss. Like for the most part, I don't even think about the fact that I'm vision impaired. I forget that I'm vision impaired myself, which I know probably sounds stupid to everyone, but it's not, there's not a lot that it, it limits me from doing. Whereas it would be a much bigger problem if I wanted to be a pilot. So lucky for me and lucky for probably the rest of the world that I had no intention of being a pilot. So it's not something that bothers me day to day. I can do basically everything I want to be doing. And with our pain patients, it's really the same thing that it's about everything that's been taken away from them. So if you can help give them back the things that are meaningful to them, then suddenly the pain's not the biggest thing in their life. And it's not such an important thing. It's not sort of dominating their life because it may be there and it may be a background noise, but suddenly they're back doing all the things that they love doing. So you can give them permission to move and give them permission to do those things and reassure them that it's okay. And suddenly the pain's not so important. Amazing. Mate, Dan, I'm, I'm glad you're not a pilot. I'm glad you're here to service. We, we need a wonderful we need, pilot. <laughs> we, we need more people like you in our industry and, and it's so good to hear your story. 
it's been inspirational. I've even learned a lot during this conversation. So thank you so much. And for the listeners out there who are keen to get into contact with you, find out a bit more about you, where can they find you? Um, yes, well, there's a profile about me on the Pain Revolution website. So that's painrevolution.org or they can check out my website, which is Daniel Searle, D-A-N-I-E-L-S-E-A-R-L-E.com.au. And yeah, physiotherapist in Aubrey Wodonga. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Awesome, Dan. Love it. Keep up the great work. Thank you.